Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. For instance. I bet you didn't know that Americans used to love a sport that they no longer love. Hello, I am Andy Zaltzman. What happened in September 1844 in New York City that had never happened before? You've got two seconds to answer that question before I too slow. It was the first ever international cricket match, and many say the first modern international fixture in any sport. And it was played by those two renowned hotbeds of cricket, Canada and the USA. Yes, that's right, the USA. You heard, write it down, it's spelt U, S, and then A. More than 10,000 people turned up to watch the game in Bloomingdale Park on Staten Island. And when I say watch, I really mean gamble on. And then, for whatever reason, you blew it, America. You had cricket and you spurned it. Maybe because of the result of that first ever international match, which was a win for Canada. After which you evidently thought, now let's invent our own sports and never play anyone else at them. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Thanks to the comedian and cricket fanatic Andy Zaltzman for helping us introduce the theme of tonight's show, Athletes Feats. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is a podcast that's also a game show that's also live journalism where contestants tell us their most interesting IDKs or I don't knows. To judge these IDKs, we have assembled a panel of very bright people. Would you please welcome Fox Sports 1 host Katie Nolan, head of the NFL Players Association, D. Smith, and the comedian Tammy Sager. You three are going to be awesome. That much we already know. Let's see what else we know. Katie Nolan, we'll start with you. We know that you are the host of Garbage Time with Katie Nolan, for which you won a sports Emmy. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. Where do you keep it? Uh, it's on my desk. On your desk on at work? Desk at work. And uh, we know your childhood hockey coach mistook you for a boy and called you Kyle all season, as did your teammates, and that they only figured it out when you went to a birthday party in a dress. Yeah. Katie Nolan, tell us something we don't yet know about you. Uh, I won a Junior Olympic gold medal for rhythmic gymnastics. Wow, that's not nothing. No, it's not nothing. You're right. Would you consider rhythmic uh, gymnastics kind of uh, cricket-like in another sport that America doesn't care very much about? Yeah. You know, I'm blaming America for the fact I never got a real Olympic gold medal in rhythmic gymnastics. I think that's uh, I think that's the right person to blame. Next up, Dee Smith. You are an impressive gentleman, I have to say. We know that before your 2009 election to become executive director of the NFL Players Association, you practiced a lot of law as a litigator with a couple white shoe firms, as well as with the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia. 
Uh, I am curious how the bad guys you dealt with then compared to the NFL owners you deal with today. Um, let's just say that it skews a little bit more in favor of the bad guys then, just a little bit. We know you were a sprinter in college, and we know that had you not successfully negotiated an end to the NFL lockout in 2011, that America would have died without its football. So, uh, so D. Smith, tell us something we don't know about you, please. Well, thank you. Great to be here. I actually went to college studying to be a minister hmm. and chose at the last minute to become the opposite of that, I think. Which is a, a lawyer. <laughs> I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I find that um, the NFL Players Association, if you follow football, know a little bit about what you do. But for those who don't, who just see football as NFL, you have NFL in the name of your organization. Just quickly, what do you do? We represent every player in the National Football League. So whether it's protecting their economic interest, making sure they get paid, uh, making sure that they get proper health care, holding doctors accountable, fighting for them when they seek uh, workers' comp, Every now and then, we have a little bit of a battle with a guy named Roger Goodell over things like deflate gate. Um, but what's, that's what's that? I, nothing, <laughs> nothing. It's over. It's it was just a dream. And our final panelist, Tammy Sager. So happy you're here. What we know about you so far is this: we know your parents were both college professors, one in microbiology and one in mathematics and that you, like all offspring of high achieving academics, chose comedy as your career. Um, <laughs> They were super psyched. <laughs> yeah. We know that you perform improv. You've been a writer on a ton of great TV shows. You've been involved in writing 34 episodes of 30 Rock, 19 episodes of Inside Amy Schumer. We know you recently appeared in the really wonderful Mike Birbiglia film, Don't Think Twice, playing an improv comedian who's actually a lot less successful than you are. So, Tammy Sager, keeping in mind tonight's sporty theme, tell us something we don't know about you, please. Um, the sportiest thing about me is my grandfather was an international-level soccer player mm. in, in Europe. Um, the sporty thing about me is that I still don't know how to ride a bike, and I have been trying <laughs> a lot. So, uh, yeah. But once again, my grandfather was sporty. International-level soccer star. I bet you're way funnier than your grandfather was, though. I'm too busy destroying his legacy to really... (laughs) Very, very happy to have the three of you here tonight. It's time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it works. Contestants will come on stage to deliver their IDKs, usually in the form of a question to allow you to, to take a guess at what they're talking about. You can chat with them, interrogate them as much as you'd like, and once we've heard all the contestants, you panelists will pick a winner. The IDKs are to be judged on three criteria. Number one, does it surprise you? Is it something you truly did not know? Number two, is it worth knowing? And number three, is their IDK demonstrably true? And to help with the demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our fact checker in residence, Mr. Jody Avergan. Hello. Jody Avergan hosts ESPN's 538 Politics podcast, and he heads up the new 30 for 30 podcast. Jody, uh, I'm, I'm grateful you're willing to be on our podcast, even though we don't have a number in our name. That's right. I only work for places with numbers. So um, I've actually translated on a phone keypad. TMS IDK translates to 867-435. So please kindly refer to the show as that from now on. All right. It's time then to play... Eight six seven four three five, formerly known as Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tonight's theme, remember athletes' feats, anything related to the world of sport, even the sports that you may not consider a sport. Uh, before we bring up our first contestant, a final word to our panelists. 
It takes a lot of courage for the audience contestants to get on stage and try to impress people as impressive as yourselves. So while you should be firm in your questioning, I also encourage you to be kind, if only because later in the game, you, the judges, shall be judged by the audience. All right, then, please welcome to the stage our first contestant, Allie Kalman. All right, Allie, hi, nice to see you. What do you do? Hi, I'm a grad student in education policy at Teachers College, and I'm a trivia host with Trivia NYC. Oh, that sounds pretty good for us. So (laughs) I'm ready. So are our panelists, Katie Nolan, Dee Smith, and Tammy Sager. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? All right, so here's my question. What major professional sporting event awards the winner the extraordinarily modest prize of a free lobster dinner? It has to be golf, something golf. Yes, golf. <laughs> is it the Wasp Super Bowl? Or? Uh, it's, wow. it's, it's not. It's I'm going to pick uh, a sport that has to be in a, a, you know, near a shipyard, a dock. Uh, You're overthinking uh, this. Really? Okay. Yeah. So. There's, uh, there's no golf. sailing involved. <laughs> Allie, you want to put them out of their misery? Well, you'll have to make it to Victory Lane at the New Hampshire Motor Speedway. NASCAR race winners there are awarded with a live, still-squirming lobster named Loudon. After a driver's alarming photo op with their crustacean trophy, the meat is cooked and sent to the driver and crew, while the exterior is reassembled and mounted by a taxidermist. I love your faces. (laughs) It oddly seems to echo NASCAR accidents. (laughs) (laughs) So so NASCAR's lived up to its quirky reputation with some pretty out-there trophies and traditions. The Sonoma race winner usually sips a Napa Valley Red out of the wine glass-shaped trophy. Since 1964, a full-size grandfather clock has been the reward at Martinsville. And when Nickelodeon sponsored the spring race at Kansas in 2015, Jimmy Johnson went home with a big old SpongeBob SquarePants. So while Loudon the Lobster is my favorite example, he's just one of several wacky NASCAR trophies. Thinking of a new Pro Bowl trophy. Yeah, How about not lobster. having the Pro Bowl? I'm Can for that, that be our trophy? <laughs> <laughs> you said that they were le- the the lobsters named Loudon. Mm-hmm. Loudon, like the name of the city in New Hampshire. But so, but do they just keep naming? It's just the you lobster know, Loudon the first, Loudon the second, Loudon the. Even if it's not his name, it can't be the only prize. The, no. the lobster dinner. Presumably, no, they, there's some it's, cash. It's, it's not. You do get a couple hundred thousand dollars as well. Oh. But, but oh. the more important oh. one. But is, they is don't the lobster. see a live thing die in front of them. That's, no, they're saying that's the real prize, Danny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before we finish up with Allie, let's check in with our fact checker, Jody Avergan. Jody, uh, extremely down-to-earth trophies in NASCAR. Mm-hmm. What do you know? Uh, I'm looking at photos of Loudon right now. Um, th- it's a really big lobster. Yeah, it's like huge. three, four feet long. You guys have to stop long. talking about it like it's the same lobster. It got eaten. But I did then start looking into other strange trophies in other sports. So there's this weird tradition in downhill skiing where they give you an animal when you win a race. So they give, you know, like calves or goats. Um, in 2005, Lindsey Vaughn was given the option of a $5,000 prize or a cow. And she took the cow. And she still <laughs> owns the cow. All right, then. Um, panelists, later you will be asked to rank all our contestants and pick a winner. So you might want to take a few notes right now on Allie Common so you remember. And Allie, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Thank Great you. job. <laughs> Let's now welcome our next contestant, Carl Bialik. Come on up, Carl. <laughs> Carl, 
Where are you from? What do you do? I'm from right around here, a few blocks away, and I work with Jody at 538, so I kind of have home field advantage tonight. Ooh, or do you? Go. Or do Maybe you? Jody will overcompensate. We'll see. All right, what do you have for us tonight, Carl? Okay, so if you serve first in tennis, or if you go first in penalty kicks in soccer, you usually win. And that's not because of any inherent advantage of going first, but it's because there's so much psychological pressure on whoever's going second because you're usually playing from behind, and even if you succeed when it's your turn, you can merely catch up. You can't actually take the lead. And if you don't succeed late in the game, you just lose outright. On the other hand, in college football overtime, the team that goes second usually wins. There's one sport, though, for which we have no idea whether going first is an advantage or not. Which sport is that? Sex. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I don't... uh, Okay, Uh, is it a sport that doesn't involve a ball? No. Yeah. Not is it a team sport or individual? Team sport. The only thing I can think of is family feud, because no. it really does not matter if you pass <laughs> or you take the category. No ball, though. Man, no what's ball. wrong with you? I don't know. What's wrong? <laughs> um, if, if the sport were cricket, would we even know or care? Yeah, so in cricket, it turns out that it used to be a big advantage to go first, and then teams start to figure out advantages to going second. So now the team that goes second in test cricket usually wins. So you're saying in some sports, it's an advantage to go first. Right. In some sports, it is a disadvantage to go first. This is a sport we have no idea. But this is a sport that we don't know. Yeah. In baseball, going second, it, but I mean, once you're in extra innings, I don't feel like there'd be an advantage, but that's, your face says that's wrong, so I'll move on to a different sport. Does, does uh, your face say that's wrong, Carl? Katie's right. It's baseball. Although she sort of argued herself out of it, so I I kind of let that process go. I do that just in case it's called hedging your bet. Carl, uh, let me tell you about baseball. Okay, so in baseball, most people have assumed for the history of the sport that going second, batting second, is an advantage. And there's even a make it or break it expression that goes with it, last licks. And the reason that people thought last licks was a big advantage in baseball is that Because you're batting second, you can tailor your strategy based on the score. And especially late in a game, like in the ninth inning or in extra innings, that's a really big advantage, or it seems like it should be. If the game is tied, you only need to score one run to win the game, so you can play to score one run. If you're down two runs in the game, then you would want to play more aggressively. In baseball, the home team always gets last licks. So fans have assumed for a long time that last licks is a big part of the reason why the home team usually wins. And in fact, in Major League Baseball, the home team wins about 54% of games. But precisely because the home team always gets last licks, it's really hard to figure out if last licks itself is an advantage. Maybe the advantage comes from some of the other advantages we know accrue to the home team in sports. Crowd support, familiarity with the field, bias of umpires towards the home team. People have tried to study this. There are some college baseball playoff games that are played at neutral sites. And if you look just at those games, which are pretty rare the team that has last licks wins only about 50% of the time. My theory is that we've been thinking about last licks all wrong all along. I think the team that pitches second has just as much of a claim to last licks because the team that's pitching is trying to prevent the team that's batting from scoring runs, and most of the time they succeed, and they can choose to intentionally walk a batter, they can choose where to position their fielders, and they can choose which pitches to throw. The team that's batting is trying to score, but the team that's pitching has all sorts of things it can do to try to stop them. Well, that shut him up, Carl. Nicely done, yeah. And baseball does that. And you got to say last licks 74 times. (laughs) And it made me uncomfortable every time. (laughs) Uh, Jody Avergan, what do you say? 
Well, as a colleague of Carl's, let me just say that um, he overthinks everything like this even around the office. <laughs> really? Um, it's in really? my job description, No, Jerry. come on. Uh, I, I don't really have anything to add about baseball game theory, but Carl's repeated incessant use of the phrase last licks, it did get me uh, going down a rabbit hole of researching uh, Tootsie Roll Pops oh, and how many right. licks it takes to get to the center. Yeah. Uh, and where exactly that last lick lies. This, so, is, this is going in a good direction. There is research on this. A group of engineering students from Purdue University reported that the licking machine that they had made, which what? is modeled after the human You need tongue, a wise owl. You can't have a licking machine. Uh, modeled after the human tongue, took an Whoa. average of 364 licks to get to the center of the Tootsie Pop. It's a whole year. One Their a Big day. Ten yeah. rival, the University day. of Michigan, said, what we are going to build our own licking machine. They built one. Did I mention Did the minister part? It takes 411 part? licks to get to the center of the Tootsie So that means that the second licking machine was worse at licking. Hey, did or we cure cancer already? And that's why we are working. <laughs> Carl Bialik, thank you for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome to the stage our next contestant, Devorah Myers. Devorah, tell us your story. What do you do? I am a writer and a journalist, born and raised in Brooklyn, and I wrote a book about women's gymnastics called The End of the Perfect Ten. All right, Devorah, why don't you tell us something we don't know? So during the 2016 Summer Olympics, the U.S. men's gymnastics team failed to win a medal in the team competition and the all-around. The U.S. women's team, however, did, as many will recall, really well. They won the team goal by, like, eight points. They took, like, every single medal. They were the greatest thing since sliced bread. And afterwards, a sports writer from USA Today wrote a column basically saying, you know, if the men want to win like the women, they just have to do everything the women do. Now... Any ideas like I and many other gymnastics nerds took issue with this kind of analysis? Don't they have different events? Like, the men have the rings, Mm -hmm. women have the dancing? Yeah, and there's a little bit of, like, backstory to why they do different things. Let's hear it. Okay. Basically, men's and women's gymnastics aren't the same sport. They only have two events in common, the floor and the vault. And women compete in the balance beam and the uneven bars, and the men compete on parallel bars, high bar, rings, pommel horse. And the women's competition is almost exclusively lower body. They do almost nothing with the upper body, the exception of the uneven bars. And the men place a premium on the upper body with four of the six events focused on that. So I think you know, this is really interesting in terms of sports because most sports simply separate the men from the women. But the way the game is played is pretty much the same from basketball to swimming. Even figure skating basically has the same exact rules. But gymnastics evolved differently. When women started competing in the early 20th century, the apparatuses were in flux for everyone. In fact, they used to do things like what they would call the hand exercises, the rhythmic um, gymnastics. And women at times competed on events that are today solely associated with men, such as the parallel bars and the rings even. Eventually, when the events became sort of formalized, the women got the danciest of the apparatuses, the balance beam and the floor exercise. And in the early years, these events mostly eschewed acrobatics or anything remotely daring. If you like go look on YouTube at old clips of gymnastics, and it's like, I basically could be the Olympic champion up until the year 1956. And I couldn't do anything more than a backflip. So Laddie Buchanan, who was a member of the 1948 U.S. Olympic team, told me that they were actually told they weren't allowed to do cartwheels on the balance beam, that even though some of them could do them. 
because acrobatics were supposed to be the domain of the men. The women were supposed to be ladies on the streets and on the balance beam. But not in the sheets. But not in the sheets. (laughs) But starting in the 60s, the level of athleticism in women's gymnastics greatly increased. And it started to move closer to the men in terms of the skill composition. This was helped because a lot of men's coaches started to coach the women because the women were so much more popular and you can make more money. And the gymnasts became younger and smaller and better conditioned. And they started performing the acrobatic feats that made Olga, Nadia, and Mary Lou household names. And you fast forward several decades, and you've got Simone Biles, who she could probably out-tumble any guy. And yet she still doesn't touch any of the men's events. They are two separate sports, despite how far the women have come. Well, well doesn't that just represent so much? <laughs> the women can do everything they have to do, and then still they don't get to do the things the men do. Yes. I'm just going to take notes quietly. <laughs> Jody, the gender gap in gymnastics, what can you tell us? Uh, yeah, well, so I was interested in looking into the pommel horse, which is one of the men's events. So I took this uh, opportunity to look into it. Me too. Can you tell me it. about it? I don't understand. Now, of course I'm going to tell you about <laughs> it. Uh, so uh, the pommel horse, um, which is the event where you kind of spin around on a bench that looks has, uh, has like two handles sticking out the top, uh, it does have horsey roots. So the pommel is the upward curving part of a saddle. Uh, in the front and the, and, the, and the rear of the rider. And then ancient Greeks and then Romans would practice mounting and dismounting using wooden replica horses in their free time. Then you cut to the 19th and 20th century, and this is my favorite part of this, is there's all these photos of early pommel horses as it's transitioning into gymnastics, but they still kind of look like horses, like they have a little neck and they have a little tail coming out on the other end. And so this is my official plea to the IOC to return the little tail. Uh, bring back the tail. Nice. On the pommel horse yeah. at the Olympics. Jody Abergan, well done. Devorah Myers, awesome. great stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more contestants, and we'll make our panelists tell us something we don't know. If you would like to be a contestant on a future show or attend a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight who are awesome are named Katie Nolan, Dee Smith, and Tammy Sager. Our fact checker is Jody Avergan. And tonight's theme, you will recall, is athletes' feats. To that end, earlier we asked our studio audience to propose a rule change for their favorite sport. Panelists, I would love it if each of you would read, perhaps, one audience submission. So, uh, Katie... What do you have? Uh, It's from Lorita Dodderton, who said, allow physical contact, no breaking bones, that's important, in chess when the opponent takes more than five minutes for a move. What kind of physical contact, if you can't break bones, would you do in chess? Oh, I mean, you mean me personally? I'd probably start with a slap. Yeah. Um, (laughs) All right, D. uh, I've got a clear winner. In tackle football, you shouldn't tackle, you should tickle. Uh. (laughs) I think then nobody would get hurt. It would be okay. Feelings might get hurt. Feelings might get, you know what? And those hurt the most of all. Um, Jason B. had a rule that I would like to see changed. Uh, Instead of sitting in the penalty box for two minutes, the player who committed the penalty has to sit in the opposing team's bench for the duration of the penalty. 
for those yeah. of us who think that hockey is not violent enough, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's step it up a notch. Pretty sure. Nicely done, people. Nicely done. Give yourselves a hand. Yep. All right, let us get back to our little game here. Would you please welcome the next contestant, Darren Ravel. Come on up, Darren. Hello, Darren. Hi, Katie. Oh. Oh. I feel tension. Uh, My name is Darren Ravel, and I'm a sports business reporter for ESPN and Katie Nolan's least favorite person. That's not true. That's not Roger Goodell. Top five. Uh, No, I love Darren. Darren, the floor is yours, at least uh, as long as you can hold it. Okay. Uh, 20 years ago, the movie about the famous sports agent Jerry Maguire came out. Uh, What do you think the effect on the sports agent industry was from the movie? Show me the money. I mean, automatically, I would think it would be really good. It made them look like heroes. It made them... Now, you, D, D is obviously uniquely qualified to answer this since they certify sure. agents. That's one role of the NFLPA. Is that true? We do. Yeah. We, are I, you going to say that it made agents more popular? It, 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 it actually, my thesis is it destroyed the sports agent industry. Ooh, and, tell us more. And so basically, everyone always wanted to be Cuba Gooding Jr., sure. right? You always wanted to be a player. I still want to be. Really? People... <laughs> But the sports agents really had not been that public. There had been Tom Condon, Lee Steinberg, but not the general people didn't necessarily know those guys. So let me just give you the numbers of what happened. In 1992, there were 423 registered agents for the NFL, uh, and the cost was $400 to, to be certified. By 2002, so six years after Jerry Maguire, there were 1,100 registered agents. The cost had more than doubled to be certified. And at that point, 40% or more of the people who were certified represented no players. So what, what, what actually happened? First of all, the guys who had the money and the guys who were already established got more money. These guys now had more money to recruit. They could give family members jobs. They could give irrational marketing guarantees to people. And so the best negotiators didn't rise to the top. You would think, well, more people are coming into the business. This is a classic maturing of the business. This is great. But because of the speed of it and because of the unfair disadvantage it didn't work out. More than a thousand people entered the sports agent industry trying to become an agent over a 10-year period of time and then left it. And then what, what made the business even worse was the fact that originally the fee was 4% and it got down to, then it was 3%. And what happened then was so many people want the top wanted to get these players that they could afford to say, I'll do 0.1% so that I get See, Michael. all of the things that you're saying to me actually make it sound like it it's not made it more competitive. Right. Like they're going to have, you can't have a thousand agents because there aren't, a, there aren't that many players to support more, all that. It did make it more competitive. It was the maturing of the business, but it sped it up in a way that was so unnatural but I think what things. Tammy is getting at is she's pointing out the old correlation versus causality issue that you're trying to identify. Isn't that right, Tammy Sager? 
I'm saying supply spiked, not necessarily with better supply, but demand is going to stay the same because the number of players in the league stay the same. And all the things that you're saying of it going worse and people's commissions getting cut is actually better for players, but better, I'm, but sharper you're, you're, agents. You're taking me to the other side now because I'm saying it ruined the sports agent industry. My argument is maybe some good people got into the business, maybe some bad people got into the business. But more people found out that maybe this is something that I want to do. I have a problem with it ruined. Because that means that there was something, quote, good that existed before Jerry Maguire, and Cuba Gooding came in and ruined it for everybody. Jody Avergan, Darren Ravel has been trying to sell us the notion of Jerry Maguire ruining sports agenting, the panel not buying so much. How about you? Since I have you and, and, and you, D here, I, I figured I'd bring this up that I've been reading about a little bit here is... Um, kind of conflict of interest in the agent world. I feel like I always hear these stories about the same agent, like a super agent like Scott Boris or whatever, um, representing two players who are potentially negotiating with the same team, and then it strikes me as like this sort of zero-sum moment where if you get a good contract for one player, you're inherently getting a, a worse contract for someone else. Is that a problem from either of your perspectives? Could, could, uh, could, could be. Uh, my feeling about it is if both players understand and know um, what the agent is doing, it decreases the risk. They can make the choice that if they don't want that guy representing both players, he can move on to another agent that got into the business because of Jerry Maguire. Okay. I think one, like one big thing that we don't like, um, I don't think that it's great when uh, agents are representing people in management and representing players at the same time. Which has um, happened in the NBA, happened with Jason Kidd. He was, he was coach of the Nets. He was represented by an agent. And lo and behold, like half the players on the Nets happened to also be represented by that same agent. But like, right. isn't, that, isn't that all agents in all industries? I don't think that's just unique to sports. Like if my boss uh, is represented by an agent, which he is, and then also the people that they hire to work at the network are represented by that same agent, which does happen a lot. Isn't that the same conflict of interest? Um, it could be. But if you have an agent who is representing a GM and he's trying to shop a small number of players, I think that that creates a, a conflict that is probably the most problematic that I could create. Darren Ravel, thanks so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Okay, uh, would you please welcome to the stage our next contestant, Eric Verhugen. Eric. Uh, Eric, who are you? What do you do? Uh, so I'm an associate professor in the Department of Economics and the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia University. Well, um, tell us what you have for us tonight then, Eric. So a research team that I'm on has done an experiment with soccer ball producers in Sialkot, Pakistan, which it turns out is a world center of soccer ball manufacturing. We're going right to deflate gate, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> So, as you may know, the standard soccer ball design involves hexagons and pentagons, and they're cut from rectangular sheets of an artificial weather. Of but course. Of course. <laughs> um, there are cutters who hold, they hold a metal die, and they locate it to cut the hexagons and pentagons. Okay, so it turns out that they were, when they were cutting pentagons, they were not doing it in the most efficient way. And so we figured out a way that they could get 272 pentagons from one of these rectangular sheets instead of 256. And so for our experiment, we gave this die out and the layout out to 35 of the 135 soccer ball firms in town in Sialkot. Um, and so my question is, uh, when you give out a pure waste-reducing technology like this, um, do firms adopt it? No. 
Because you'd think you'd say yes, but then that like wouldn't be that interesting. You so got a fifty percent chance, I guess. Oh, yeah. But I'm I'm assuming you're gonna tell us why. So my guess for why would be that like when people do something a certain way for a long time, they are just very resistant to changing that. So so we had a few firms adopt enough so we were convinced that the technology was working. We were getting the right number of pentagons, but most did not. And so we went and we asked the firms why not, and their number one answer was employee resistance. Turns out these guys who are cutting are paid per ball, and they just uh. want to go quickly. And our new die was slowing them down initially while they're learning how to do it. Um, and that was potentially costing them money. Okay? And so to block adoption, um, they basically told their owners that technology doesn't work and they shouldn't adopt. And the owners believe them. Some of the owners figured out that they should change the pay scheme, and those are the guys who actually adopted but most did not, and most did not end up adopting the technology. So what you're saying is the owners really didn't understand the game. Oh, God. Mm. That's that where we're... I'm glad we're sticking up for uh, sports agents and factory owners in yeah. this podcast tonight. <laughs> okay, so even though the reduction in wage was about 10 times larger than the increase in labor costs because it was slower, most firms did not adopt so then to encourage the workers to take another shot at it, we did a second experiment. We said, we'll give you a month's salary as a, as a bonus if they could show their owners the technology worked. And that turned out to have a dramatic effect. So about half the places where we did that, the firms ended up adopting. So the moral of the story is incentives matter. And in particular, employees have to expect to share in the gains from technology adoption in order for adoption to be successful. But so if they're making more pentagons per whatever, die, whatever you said, wouldn't they be making more soccer balls anyway? No, because it's slower. It's just limiting uh, the but waste. But once they learn it, wouldn't they eventually, the payoff would be, if they can get as fast with that, they were making more soccer balls? So basically, within about a month, the workers got up to the same speed, so yeah. they were going as fast. Right. But the workers didn't necessarily know that up front, and they knew that immediately they were going to be slowed down. So at least for this month, they were going to be worse off, and maybe forever. If the employees shared 50% of the revenue as a part of their labor contract, there'd be an increased incentive on both sides yeah, to adopt the most efficient thing, waste. right? That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. Hey, Eric, I'm curious what the locals thought of you, this guy coming in who says he's a professor from Columbia University and let me show you how to do this differently. Did they, what was their attitude toward you generally? So I did get suspected to be a CIA agent. So the local, you know, local intelligence officer came and paid a visit because the CIA at the time was inserting people in various guises around the country. How do we, uh, how yeah. do we know you weren't? <laughs> Did yeah. you have like a big soccer game with all the kids in the village? Uh, and so break this attention? is interesting. Almost nobody in Pakistan plays soccer. Wait, 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 whoa, whoa, wait. So why do they make all the soccer balls? Isn't there? that interesting? Mm, because they used to make it for British Army officers in the late 1800s. Oh, whoa. that's something I didn't know. <laughs> so Jody Avergan, Eric tells us incentives matter, which you probably don't need to fact check. But what about the hexagons and polygons too? Yeah. So your talk of, uh, of the panels and, and the way soccer balls constructed um, got me thinking of this controversy that springs up basically before every World Cup about the design of the ball. So a standard soccer ball has 32 hexagonal panels. But then in 2006, Adidas introduced a design that had 14 panels that were glued together rather than stitched. And then in 2010, they went to an eight panel ball. And then most recently in 2014, they went to a six-panel ball, so you can see where this is going. And every year, players freak out about this, this different design because they're convinced that the physics are different. Eric Verhoogen, thanks so much for teaching us a better way to make soccer balls. Well done. Great job. And would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Gary Belsky. <laughs> Gary. 
Good evening, Gary. Who are you and what do you do? I'm the former editor-in-chief of ESPN the Magazine and at the moment awesome. the co-author of a book my publisher would want me to mention that it's on the New York Times bestseller list called On the Origins of Sports, the Early History and Original Rules of Everybody's Favorite Game. Congratulations. All right, Gary, what do you have for us tonight? So gambling and sports have probably gone together since a couple of Neanderthals who were bored and started throwing axe heads at a tree. What sport had its name changed because of ambivalence about betting and baseball? Ooh, whoa. What? Whoa. So there was concerns about betting and baseball, and because of that, another sport entirely hmm. had its name changed, essentially. Is this a sport that, like, is televised often today? Like it we- is sometimes televised even on ESPN, yeah. Hurling. Poker. Interesting, interesting. No, no. Is it um, a team sport? Uh, it can be a team sport. It's recreationally often a team sport, but it's usually played by individuals against each other. Can you tell us the best player who ever played that sport? If I told you the best player or the most famous player, you would immediately know the sport. So should I tell you? Ping pong, which is actually officially table tennis, no. By the way, you would know the most famous table tennis player in the world? Yes, obviously. But the, the most famous person in the sport has a nickname, and the nickname has to do with a state. Well, half of the name is a state. Texas. Half the, Texas. I know, half I the nickname Texas. is a state. That's not helpful at all. What is you the know what it is, don't you? State. Say no. it again? I said, what's the crop of that state? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the state is known for the, the number of its lakes. Oh, so Minnesota. Oh. Minnesota Fats Pool. Oh. Bingo. Yay. That was oh. so beautiful. Yeah. Oh. Wow. So should I tell All you about right, it? All Gary, let's hear the story. Yes, okay, please. a century and a half ago in the dawn of organized baseball, gamblers would bet not just on the outcomes of games, but also on events within it. So they would make bets on who might make the first error, how many runs would be scored in a particular inning. They might even bet on the outcome of a particular pitch or, or an at-bat. Oftentimes it was more fun to watch the money changing hands in what was called the betting pool than it was to actually watch the game. But the organizers of the sport got nervous because gamblers were a little bit seedy, and so they banned them from the fields because they thought they were scaring away regular folk, families. So the gambling pools, the betting pools, moved nearby to either saloons or billiards parlors. Playing billiards gave them something to do aside from getting drunk, Uh, while they waited for news from the fields to come. But the betting pools became so associated with the billiards parlors that the latter took on the name of the former, which is why today we say we're shooting pool. Wow. That That is fascinating. Good stuff, Gary. Are we the only country that calls billiards pool? I think they also call it, sometimes they call it that in uh, England, because not for nothing. Um, The first hundred years of newspaper reports about cricket in England in the 1600s and 1700s were basically reports about the outcomes of all the gambling that was done on it. The first 100 years of cricket reports, is that about one game? Gary Belsky, so good, so interesting. Jody, shooting pool, Gary tells us derives from baseball betting pools. Do you have anything mm-hmm. more for us there? 
Um, well, you mentioned that you, you could bet throughout the game on all mm-hmm. sorts of different activities. And, of course, you can still do that as a prop bet. So um, uh, I was looking up some of the odds that were available for this past World Series. Uh, you could get 12 to 1 odds that a manager would get ejected, 20 to 1 odds that someone singing the national anthem would forget the words, which seems low to me. Uh, and there was an over-under on the number of times Bill Murray would show up on television that you could bet on. Uh, the one bet I wish I'd taken was that the over-under on the running time for the longest game was three hours and 51 minutes. And as you'll recall, game seven went 10 innings, 17-minute rain delay, and clocked in at four hours and 28 minutes. So if you'd taken the over, you would have won some money. Gary Belsky, thanks a Gary, million. That was Great awesome. job. And that concludes our round of audience contestants tonight. I think you'd agree we all heard some great and diverse stories that are pretty sporty. Let's give all of them a hand one more time. Thank you much. It is time now for our panelists to vote. So they will be using a ranked voting system to pick their favorites, and the contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner. He or she will join us back on stage to play the next round with our panelists. When you are ranking the IDKs, there are three criteria to consider. Number one, did the contestant tell you something you truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? So let me just remind you of all the IDKs we heard tonight from the top. Allie Kalman with Very Down-to-Earth NASCAR Trophies. Carl Bialik with Does the First Mover Advantage Exist in Sports? Devorah Myers with the Gymnastics Gender Gap. Darren Ravel with How Jerry Maguire Ruins Sports Agents. Eric Verhugen with How to Make a Soccer Ball. Or Gary Belsky with Why We Shoot Pool. While the votes are being cast, let me say this. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, would you please spread the word and give it a nice rating, perhaps, on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts? And if you would like to come tell me something I don't know, or if you want to come see the show live in New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., or Chicago, please visit TMSIDK.com. You can also find us on social media at TMSIDK underscore show. Okay, the panelist votes are in. Once again, thanks to all our contestants. It's really, truly sad. There can only be one winner because there was so much good stuff. Our five runners-up, however, will each receive a certificate of impressive knowledge, (laughs) which is suitable for framing, so that's very nice. But there can only be one winner, and that one tonight is Gary Belsky. Why we shoot pool. Great job, Gary. Gary Belsky, what prize could we possibly give you that is commensurate with the uh, depth and awesomeness of your IDK? Well, do you remember back at the top of the show when we heard from our favorite British comedian, Andy Zaltzman? For whatever reason, you blew it, America. You had cricket and you spurned it. Well, Gary, your prize is a Grey Nichols T20 adult cricket set with a 33-and-a-half-inch bat that is autographed by none other than Andy Zaltzman, cricket fanatic. Congratulations. Get out. out. Should I run into 29 other people who want to play (laughs) cricket? I'm I'm prepared. Gary, you also get to play, whether you like it or not, the next round of our game along with the panelists. We call it the reference round. And tonight, it's going to work like this. The four of you will each have about a minute 
to come up with a good IDK that's somehow related to tonight's theme, sports or athletes' feats. And where will you find this IDK? Well, we're going to give each of you a different volume of one of my favorite academic journals, the Journal of Sports Economics, which I'm sure you all also treasure. And you'll have a minute to page through it. So Katie, D, Tammy, and Gary Belsky have fun reading and get ready to tell us something we don't know. While they are working, or from the looks of it, while they're panicking, we are going to take a short break. When we return, we'll hear what they came up with, and then our live audience will whittle these four contestants down to two, and those two will go head-to-head in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. All right, welcome back. It's time for Katie Nolan, D. Smith, Tammy Sager, and tonight's audience winner, Gary Belsky, to tell us something we do not know about athletes' feats or sports based on their having spent a couple minutes with the Journal of Sports Economics. So, Katie Nolan, uh, why don't you go first? What juicy IDK did you find? Uh, so, Ken Sanford and Frank Scott, they studied the intensity of sports rivalries in college sports, specifically in the SEC, uh, based on amount of tickets purchased and price of ticket uh, on the secondary market. Basically, they found that the most intense rivalry in the SEC is between Florida and Georgia. Um, And the least exciting rivalry in the SEC appears to be between Kentucky and South Carolina. I buy that, completely buy Mm. that. So determining... Uh, intensity of college football sports rivalry based, based on, on ticket resale intensity. Yeah, price and intensity. you would think it would have been like Bama Auburn, but they were second, which is very interesting. And it was something I didn't. There you know. go. Way to tie it all together. Great very job. Nice. I should just make clear they all have the same journal, Journal of Sports Economics, but different volumes, different editions of said journal. So, D, oh, yes. what can you tell us? Uh, I did not know that um, <laughs> Mr. Lowen, Erica Schmidt, actually studied and learned that there is a correlation between nations that have a higher level of women empowerment. Those nations have a higher number of women winning international gold medals at international competitions. Hmm. Even when they, I know, that's fantastic. Yeah, girls. So the moral of the story is if you don't beat and oppress women, they do better at life and sport. Isn't that like so counterintuitive? All right, let's not leap to conclusions. Nicely done, Dee. Very well done. Uh, Tammy Sager, what'd you find? Um, I found a fascinating study by (laughs) some uh, economic professors from South Korea uh, where they analyzed male and female professional tennis players and the kind of line calls that they make um, and that men are a lot more likely to make uh, embarrassing line call challenges. It seems to be a signal of overconfidence um, on the male's part and uh, risk aversion and shame. Women are less likely to uh, challenge ah, uh, certain ah. calls mm-hmm. um, than men, and they're less likely to make embarrassing line call challenges. They're mm. apparently much more aware of uh, looking stupid because mm. we so, are. So once again, breaking news, men are overconfident is the, uh, the headline. <laughs> Tammy, thank you very much. Gary Belsky, tonight's uh, audience contestant winner. What would you find there, Gary? 
So I am standing on the shoulders of David Callist and Daniel Lee, who are professors of economics at Shippensburg University. Um, and they looked at the National Football League and whether or not crime goes up or down on game day when it's in that town. And they found that um, in general, there's a 2.6% rise in crime on the days when teams have a, a NFL home game. And financially motivated crimes, larceny and car theft, go up 46 and 6.2% respectively. So they go up even more. They also found during playoff games in those cities, if they're hosting, those crimes decrease. They are, there's actually less of, a, uh, of, of, of financially motivated crimes. But the thing that actually moved me the most is that when um, the home team in the National Football League city is upset, there's a statistically significant increase in violence against women. So it seems like the Journal of Sports Economics is kind of uh, the journal of how bad men are at everything. And the SEC. Yeah. (laughs) When you're voting, just remember who didn't tell you something depressing. (laughs) Gary Belsky, everybody, great job on digging something out of your journal. Really good. Really good. It is time now for our live audience to vote on these four IDKs. The two top finishers will go on to our final round. So take out your phones. Audience, follow the texting instructions on the screen. All right. The live voting has closed. The votes have been tallied. And remember, four contestants now, the final two going on to the final round. In fourth place... With 15% of the vote, but we love you so very much anyway. D. Smith, Women and Sports Empowerment. In third place, with 18% of the vote, uh, Tammy Sager, Line Calls in Tennis and uh, Overconfident Men. So it's going to be Gary Belsky, who told us about crime and NFL, and Katie Nolan, who told us about sports rivalries in the SEC. Okay. And what that means is that Gary and Katie go head-to-head in our final round. And how, you may be asking, will that final round work? In a moment, we are going to reveal a topic that's related to tonight's theme, Athletes' Feats. And the two of you will then have to come up with an IDK on the spot, using no research materials whatsoever other than your own big brains, on the very slight chance that one of you tries to fabricate the answer. Remember, Jody Avergan is standing by fact-checking And what now is our final topic? As you likely know, the Chicago Cubs finally broke the longest losing streak in major American sports, a streak so long that it inevitably came to be known as a curse. And that is our inspiration for tonight's final topic, curses. So Gary Belsky and Katie Nolan, you need to tell us something we don't know about curses. Whatever it is, make it good. We're counting on you. We'll give you a minute. While our finalists are thinking, let me remind you to visit tmsidk.com to keep up with our show, including our live taping schedule and how you can get tickets or be a contestant. If you would like to suggest a theme for a future episode or if you'd like to recommend a panelist, why don't you give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter? We go by tmsidk underscore show. Katie, Gary, it's time. You'll tell us something we don't know about curses. Who wants to go first? Uh, so curses, um, there is a trade that, uh, many of you don't know about that affected one baseball team because the player went to another baseball team 
I bet you guys don't know, um, and it's it's got a fun little name called The Curse of the Bambino. Oh. And I mean, I'll tell you all about it. It's crazy. <laughs> when you said curse, I was like, what fun fact do I know about the word f***? <laughs> and then I thought about that for f- 70% of the time. And then I was like, hey, you've got to come up with something. And I was like... Well, basically, Katie Nolan knows a lot of curse words, and she knows about the curse of the Bambino. Which nobody here knows about. Which nobody here knows about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gary Belsky beat that. Good luck. (laughs) uh, um, I'm an Arizona Cardinals football fan, and in the first year of the National Football League, the Cardinals played a team called the Pottsville Maroons for the NFL championship, um, and the Pottsville Maroons, which... Like the sort of, when he didn't work in the coal mines, he practiced football. And they beat the Cardinals in this crazy, I think like really low scoring, muddy winter weather game. And they won the end of the first NFL title. And then it was taken away from them because basically the, the Cardinals realized that I think they had a, a player who was a college, who was just shouldn't have been on the team. And they contested with the National Football League and they took away the Pottsville Maroons mm. title and allegedly a curse was put on them. So there is a, the Pottsville curse is now the Cardinals have not won a championship since 1948. So like there actually up, is a curse. They beat up on a team that was like too poor to have a real yeah, name. The, the Pottsville Maroons. Stop knowing stuff. I know. I know. <laughs> now, Katie Nolan, you do have one last chance, which yeah. is that Jody Avergan may find that the whole Pottsville Maroons curse Come on, Jody. was Jody. A, a myth. Was that Jody, something that Russia put on the internet? Um, that Pottsville story is true. I actually know know that story. It's a it's a fantastic story. Oh, and so you oh, might see, but uh, we all knew it then, right? We well, all knew that story already. No, I, it, it is a fantastic story, and there are still efforts, um, even as recently yeah. as a few years ago, to try and settle this so that the Cardinals can get out from under this curse. Um, mm. Now, the first use of the word f- in a sexual connotation, um, last year, Dr. Paul Booth claimed to have found it in uh, English court records. Yeah, I've used thir- it before last year, so that's definitely <laughs> not correct. No, 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 no. Last year, they've just... More Facebook Wikipedia right now. If you could. Uh, th- th- last year, they discovered the first use. Uh, in 1310, a man local to Chester in English court's records... Was watching records, it, was forced to was, watch a cricket match. ...was referred to as Roger... By the navel. Wow. Which, wow. which Wikipedia tells me was probably a nickname. No, his mother gave him that. I think we should stop now. <laughs> and it's time for our live audience to pick a winner from oh, these two finalists. This. We'll just go with a throat vote, so make as much noise as you can. Please do remember the criteria for the two IDKs you just heard. Is it something you did not know? Is it something worth knowing? Is it true? Okay, first off, let's hear what you have to say for Katie Nolan and the Sorry. Curse of the Bambino. Stop, stop. And Thanks, uh, how about the Gary Belsky guy who told us about the Pottsville Maroons? And the... That would make Gary Belsky our winner tonight. And that is our show. I hope we told you something you didn't know about athletes' feats. I'd like to leave you with a few words from the great comedic athlete, Dimitri Martin. I used to play sports, he once said, and then I realized you can buy trophies. And now 
I am good at everything. <laughs> so here's hoping that you too are good at everything. I'd like to thank tonight's awesome panel, Katie Nolan, D. Smith, and Tammy Sager. Thanks to our brilliant contestants. And thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Thank you so much. Have a great night. And on next week's show, we discuss the wonders of words with three experts, the chief content officer of Hearst Magazine's Joanna Coles, the comedian Maeve Higgins, and the author and filmmaker Adriana Trigiani. So, Adriana, I think your view of Watson may have changed a little bit over the last few minutes. I think I'm in love. And um, he finally, he sees me. But he's in a cloud, which is typical of most men. That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Andrew Dunn, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at tmsidk.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.